You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio. President Trump has long complained about judges who issue injunctions that apply across the country. This includes activist judges who have issued nationwide injunctions prohibiting us from enforcing the immigration laws enacted even by Congress. Now the Supreme Court has backed him up, lifting a nationwide injunction and letting the administration start enforcing its new immigrant wealth test that's designed to screen out green card applicants seen as being at risk of becoming dependent on government benefits. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and & Knight and formerly head of the Office of Immigration Litigation at the Department of Justice. Describe what Trump's new immigrant wealth test is and how it differs from the old test. Sure. The test is called the public charge test. And since the 1800s, Congress actually has had a statute called the public charge statute. And what that statute has said is, is that if a person is coming to the United States from abroad, they can be denied entry into the United States if the person who's adjudicating their entry determines that they're likely to be a public charge. And what public charge has historically meant is that they will be reliant on the government dole or fisc in order to survive in the United States. Taxpayers will have to ensure that these individuals eat and get support and housing, etc. Now, what the Trump administration has done is it has, in 2018, decided to change the implementing regulations in order to define much more broadly the types of people who can be called public charges and thus to be able to exclude more foreigners from entering the United States. So are they determining in advance who might be a public charge? How would they do that? So there's three ways in which this gets implemented. The first way it gets implemented is for individuals who are abroad who are applying for visas to come into the United States. So when someone is abroad and they either want to come because they're marrying a U.S. citizen or they have a job that's petitioned for them to come on an employment-based green card, the consular adjudicator, when you go to pick up your visa at a U.S. consulate, can make a determination as to who is a public charge, and if they think that person is likely to become a public charge, they can deny them the visa right there. The second way is that someone is already here, but they're here on what's called a non-immigrant visa, meaning they came as a visitor or as a student or as a temporary worker, and now they want to apply for a green card. Maybe they married a U.S. citizen, or maybe a company has asked for them to stay permanently. In that situation, that determination can also be rejected if an adjudicator here in the United States determines that that person is going to become a public charge. And then the third way is for individuals who are here on one type of visa who want to change to a second type of visa, that application may be denied now if the person is determined to be a public charge in the future. Now, a New York federal judge blocked the policy from going into effect just while the legal fight goes forward. So how big a win is this for the Trump administration, for the Supreme Court to lift that injunction and let the policy go forward? Well, by the very terms of the arguments the Trump administration was making to the New York Court of Appeals, to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, they were saying that the harm that they would suffer 
if this rule had been enjoined even for a few more months, was that they would not be able to reject people from coming to the United States that they would otherwise have wanted to reject. And so this is a big win for them from that perspective, that they will now be able, in these interim months where the litigation is pending, to reject people from the United States that would have otherwise had to have been accepted had this rule not been implemented. So the court as a whole gave no explanation for its order, but Justice Neil Gorsuch, writing for himself, and Justice Clarence Thomas said the court needs to curb the power of federal trial judges to issue these nationwide orders that block a government initiative. So is this decision by the court more about the wealth test itself or stopping these nationwide injunctions? I think there's quite a mix of both there, and I think what may have frustrated the five justices is it'd be one thing if there was litigation about, for instance, the applicability of the public charge doctrine to people who didn't speak English or to people with disabilities or to people with low credit scores or something like that, a specific test. But what they expressed frustration about, at least in the concurring opinion, is that the rule was enjoined in its entirety as to every single individual. And they're saying it cannot be the case that every single aspect of this rule is in violation of the statute. And because of that, that challenge that tries to make it completely invalid should be stayed. This was a split decision along ideological lines. Why along ideological lines in a case like this? Are we expecting to see ideological splits in the immigration cases going forward? Sure. I think that the problem here, and it just all comes down to sort of what you think is good faith or not good faith. If you think that this regulation was done in good faith, then there would be no reason to enjoin it in its entirety because you think, okay, well, this regulation is only going to be applied in very narrow circumstances. And if in those narrow circumstances it's applied incorrectly, people can go to court and challenge it, and that will be fine. But the poor dissenters think that this was not done in good faith, that this is not going to be applied narrowly, and that this is going to mean tens of thousands of people being excluded who would never have been excluded in the past, and that when the dust settles on this regulation, you're going to see a great amount of human catastrophes in terms of people not being able to come into the United States that usually were able to come. The new policy is designed to screen out green card applicants seen as being at risk of becoming dependent on government benefits. It expands the definition of public charge and gives officials broad power to determine that someone is at risk of falling into that category. To make that determination, Department of Homeland Security officials can consider a list of factors, including age, health, education, English language proficiency, family size, wealth, and credit scores. In a 5-4 to four vote along ideological lines, the court blocked a New York federal judge's ruling that was keeping the policy from taking effect while a legal fight goes forward. So, Leon, explain the argument of those states and immigrant groups who are challenging the new wealth test. Well, the argument of the people challenging the immigration test is that they say that many of the factors that were added were not factors that Congress actually wanted added when it most recently opined on this issue of public charge in 1996. And so there what they say is, 
look, if Congress didn't want immigrants using certain benefits, they simply would have excluded immigrants from using those benefits. You can't come in after the fact in a regulation and play a gotcha game where if somebody used a benefit that the Congress allowed them to use, that this would make them a public charge. The idea being that the entire point of the public charge is to be using things that the Congress didn't want immigrants to use. But that if the Congress did want immigrants to use these benefits, the whole point of it being that they didn't consider that a bad thing. And so from that perspective, that main argument, plus the fact that they, they broadened the test out to include factors like disability, English language knowledge, and credit scores, all things that really uh, disadvantage new immigrants in the United States who may not know English but may have a skill that certainly makes it very likely that they'll earn money. Or credit score, nobody comes in with a good credit score. People come in with a zero credit score and then they have to earn it. Those kinds of things become quite onerous if they're going to be applied literally and people are going to get rejected for these things. So what happens next in the litigation? So now the litigation works its way through the Second Circuit. It's kind of the one that's most developed here. And they will make a merits determination. And assuming they maintain their merits determination that the rule is invalid, then the stay still remains in place unless the Supreme Court denies cert on the public charge case, which is very unlikely, or until the final decision of the Supreme Court. So most likely for about a year, a year and a half, the Supreme Court is allowing this public charge rule to take place, to take into effect, which will be interesting because at least during this time period, we will have much more anecdotal evidence that can be provided to the Supreme Court on the types of people that are being uh, denied visas under this that weren't being denied visas before. In lifting the injunction, part of the test is whether they're likely to succeed on the merits. So does this mean that those five justices are most likely going to allow the Trump administration to go forward with this immigrant wealth test when it does come back to the court? I think that's a very fair assumption to make here. I don't think they would have stayed the rule if they thought there was something wrong with the rule. But I think the complication with this public charge case is that it is so broad that I think the rule is so broad and the application is so broad that I think what the court really wants to do in a rule like this is to say subparts of this seem perfectly reasonable. You know, if somebody's been living in public housing for the last 36 months, why aren't they a public charge when they apply for a green card? That might be a, a very reasonable thing to ask, as opposed to if somebody doesn't speak English, why does that make them a public charge? And so what they're trying to gear the litigants toward is make those kinds of claims, the narrower kinds about specific classes of people being denied rather than the entirety of the rule. So I think they will uphold the entirety of the rule, but that doesn't speak to the subclasses that are likely to form of types of people being denied under this rule. So we've discussed before, Leon, how the Supreme Court is also allowing President Trump to build his wall with funds that were diverted from the military until that case goes through the courts. And now we have this. So does it seem to you as if the court is just willing to let the Trump administration take these, you know, huge leaps in immigration? I mean, I think it's become evident when you look at the travel ban case, the asylum case, the border wall case, and now this public charge case, that the institutional litigation that is designed to stop the president from at least 
implementing wholeheartedly reforms on immigration is not going to be welcomed by the Supreme Court. The question is, does the Supreme Court have the bandwidth to cover all of the lawsuits that are happening on all of the different immigration things? Because otherwise, it's going to end up becoming the Supreme Court of Immigration. But when the Supreme Court is taking cases, it is saying we want the Trump administration's immigration priorities to continue. And that is quite a, uh, I think, a, a set of events that perhaps was not anticipated by the litigants making these uh, cases. And it's going to require at some point, especially if the president is reelected, a sort of redetermination as to whether litigation is the right thing to do in these broader cases, because maybe you'll be creating bad precedent that will last a lifetime that you'd rather not create in this situation. Of course, now that there are more conservative judges on the circuit courts, a lot of the circuit court opinions may now go against immigrants. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And that's why, personally, when I've done these types of cases, I've always tried to stick to the application of the law to a certain specific individual, because it's much easier to make those cases, and the court looks at those, and even conservative judges will say, how could you possibly have done that? It's much easier when you're going to the court in those instances. When you're doing these broader policy challenges, a lot of times both sides go into their camps, and the decision is just, you know, we we decide the decision first, and then we come up with the law to figure that out later. And you're starting to see some of that uh, on both sides of the equation here. Because I wonder, when you have a Supreme Court that seems so willing to expand the power of the executive over the judiciary, what is left as a check on the executive? You know, if, if Congress can't do it with withholding funds, and if the Supreme Court won't do it, then there's no check, is there? Correct. It becomes very complicated because there are these two views of the world. And it's been an unresolved issue in immigration for about 50 years, is there are some people, and this I'm talking now uniquely to immigration, not to other issues where the president claims broad powers. I'm talking just about immigration. There have been people on both sides of the aisle, and President Obama made these arguments when it was time for DACA and DAPA, that say when the president does something on immigration, it's broad power that cannot be reviewed by the courts. And then there are others who say, no, 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 the courts have as much say scrutinizing these immigration policies as they do anything else. And if the president gets made here that the president does have these broad powers, well, that's potentially fine for this president, but of course then the court would say that that would happen for a subsequent president they may not like. And then similarly, you know, a president who puts in policies that will exclude many, many, many people will, while that person is president, be creating all kinds of uh, upheaval and, and difficult times for those individuals that immigration lawyers might not have wanted and should, shouldn't have brought those lawsuits if they knew this was going to be the outcome. And so these are the difficult balances. But yes, right now, it seems like the Supreme Court is leaning toward saying that on immigration, the president has extremely broad powers that the court is not going to question unless there's some really adverse outcome here that that's not being presented in the litigation. So that seems to bode ill for the DACA decision that we're expecting this term. Right. I mean, the way I've always thought this DACA decision will come down, and we'll, we'll wait and see, 
is that the court will say, look, President Obama had the power to make DACA, and President Trump thus has the power to uh, extinguish DACA, and neither is questioned by the courts. I think that's sort of a, a split decision in the sense that a new president could reinstall DACA. What would be sort of the overreach would be if the court said, and President Obama didn't have the authority to make DACA. I don't know if they'll have to go all the way there, but if they just leave it as the president has broad power either way, then that, that gets rid of DACA, and then it provides this sort of large prerogative for either president to have expansive immigration powers. Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law, Leon. That's Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight.